This is an SBC Media Partners production. Swung on, hit high and deep. Right field. Right field. Phillies fans, these are your glove stories with Murph. Check in with Greg Murphy. Murph, you got a special guest, huh? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Glove Stories with Murph. A new podcast, a new venture for us that we're really excited about. You know, over the last 25 years, I've had a front row seat to talk and listen to the guys that have played the game. But we, we thought, why not bring those stories to you? And if we're going to bring you the stories of the Phillies organization, well, you have to start with number 20, Michael Jack Schmidt, who is our first guest, and we are really excited to have him. Mike, thanks for being here, man. Yeah, Murph, um, I'm honored to be your first guest. Um, thank you. Um, going to stretch my brain a little bit this morning. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, we're going back, what, uh, well, at least 30 years in some cases here, so I don't know whether I have all the details in order. Um, like I'd like, I'll do my best. We never let facts get in the way of a good story, Mike. You know that, so that that's fine. But, uh, you know, it's funny because I always marvel at how you guys who have played the game are able, though, to recall events that happened decades ago. And it's it really is interesting. You know, you're able to remember them and be back in that moment. And that's kind of what we're hoping to do with this podcast. So let's start with you back in 1972 when the major league call up you played a handful of games in 72 and then a full season in 73 what do you remember about I'm, I'm sure you remember the feeling you had when you knew you were going up to the big leagues well first let me mention something totally uh, off subject uh are you do you have any kind of like little play play away music where if i get too long <laughs> You don't worry about that. We'll take care of that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, yeah. Exciting time for all of us. It got called up uh, in September of that 1972 year. Um, Booney, myself, um, I think maybe Mike Wallace. There was a left-handed pitcher way back then, just to name three. Um, I may be leaving somebody out, but... Uh, when you get the call to go to Philadelphia from Eugene, Oregon, that's a trip all the way across the country that you want to make for sure. Um, in my case, it was a little different because I had injured uh, my left knee pretty severely uh, in the playoffs in AAA and really um, was basically unable to play actually. Um, my buddies went up and got in the lineup pretty quick, but I went to Philadelphia and went directly to the hospital for what I thought was going to be a pretty serious knee surgery. And um, so that was kind of tough uh, on me, um, not, you know, not being able to go right up and play. I had had a pretty good year in AAA that year, and I, I felt confident that, uh, you know, I, I could do some things to show the club that, uh, Maybe next year was a year for me to be a rookie in the major leagues. So <clears throat> there was a famous surgeon uh, at that time. His, his name was John Moore. His middle name was Royal, John Royal Moore. And he was highly known uh, in Philadelphia for uh, putting bodies back together from car wrecks. And he, he you know, wow. if the people out there ever Google John Royal Moore, he was uh, at that time the Phillies team surgeon. And 
I was all prepped for surgery um, the morning after I got there and he came in and he asked me to go out in the hallway and he wanted, I'll never forget exactly what he said to me. He said, I want you to get in a stance, in a football stance, like you're a wide receiver and I want you to fire out. I'll never, his words, he said, fire out like I was coming off the scrimmage line. And I am in the hallway with, you know, an hospital gown on and a little drowsy, <laughs> you know, from the needle I got to keep me nice and relaxed. And, you know, my butt is hanging out the back and <laughs> people walking past, gurney, pushing gurneys and this stuff. So there I go. And I went, boom, and fired out. And, and uh, the surgeon said, son, if you can do that, there's no reason to operate. Wow. Yeah. And uh, wouldn't you know, like uh, four or five days later, after a little rehab with Don Seeger, uh, I was in the lineup and got my first major league hit. And it's just the way things work in life. Uh, well, that was one of the little things that totally changed my life. I mean, if he decides to do a surgery and I don't get to play at all uh, in the call up year in 72, uh, my whole life uh, my whole career would have changed. I mean, you know, everybody has those kind of things uh, uh, that are life-changing. Some of them good, some of them bad. But for me, I think the barley out, you know, far outweighed the bad. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about several other others uh, along the way. But yes, being called up, of course, uh, was an exciting time for a baseball player when you first get to put a major league uniform on. No doubt about it. I'm just thinking about what if they had cell phone cameras when you were firing off the line of scrimmage there in your hospital gown. How, how great that video. <laughs> All right. So 72, you play a little bit. 73, you have your rookie season. 18 home runs, but the batting average wasn't there. I know you, you've, again, talked about the, that that first season, or full season, and um, how you had your struggles for sure, both uh, you know on the field, maybe – uh, even, you know, questioning whether or not you belong there. But then in 1974, you're back and first game of the season, you're playing the Mets and yeah. you get up uh, against Tug McGraw with a chance to win the game and 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 you homer off Tugger. T take us back to that moment and what you think that did, not only for your career, but for 1974, your first all-star season, what that that moment meant for you. I remember uh, what set that home run up was triple, or excuse me, winter ball two years in a row. In 72 and 73, I went to winter ball two years in a row. And in 73, before getting married in 74, actually this probably would have been in 74, um, playing in the Latin American World Series in Mexico, in Hermosillo, Mexico. And one little swing of a bat totally changed my perspective on, on, a, on being a hitter. And I remember it specifically. Um, Pedro Borbone, a name out of the past, you may remember, pitched for the Reds uh, back in that day. And I told myself, you know, why am I swinging so hard? Why am I swinging so aggressively? Why am I trying to hit every ball out of the ballpark? Why am I trying to pull every pitch? And this little uh, uh, thing got in my mind. Why don't you just try to swing the bat nice and smooth and soft at the ball? And I still, to this day, uh, endorse that approach to hitting. In fact, Bryce Harper looked at me the other day on TV like, 
he did that one time. I saw him hit it. I saw him hit a double, and it was like he's going just a nice, soft, easy swing. So I did that, and I actually hit a double. The ball almost went the ball, out of the ballpark, and I'll never forget that at bat because I carried that at bat through spring training in in '74 and all the way, almost all the way through that season in '74. In fact. Um, that home run you're talking about came as a result of a nice soft swing with the game on the line at a time when I would have been really uptight and nervous and, you know, squeezing the bat really hard and trying to pull the ball. And, you know, I got, I, well, I didn't hit the screwball for sure, but <laughs> fastballs and uh, hit it out of the ballpark. And it was directly as a result of an experience I had in winter ball. And that another, there's another swing, another stepping stone to my career, a positive moment in my career. And as you mentioned, I wasn't sure I was ready to be there in 73. The entire year in 73 was a struggle. And um, I don't know, you know, they, they, I was hitting eighth in the batting order. Uh, I made the team in 74 in spring training. Um, got around to me in the eighth hole and I hit a home run off the tug to win the game. And, uh, and, and following that was a great first half. I ended up making the all-star team. I was hitting 320 with 18 home runs at all-star break. 60 RBIs was pretty good back then, back in those days at, at, at the break. And um, ended up having a great 1974 year. In fact, I think I finished in the top five in MVP voting. So there was a new Mike Schmidt in town, you know, um, young kid, single, um, manager's doghouse all the time, whole lot of thoughts. <laughs> uh, and now I come in town in 74 as a married man, a new approach to hitting, um, total lifestyle change in terms of, um, you know, where my priorities lie. And I grew up. Um, prior to that year and I owe a lot of that to my wife Donna and uh so now we're taking off on an entire new approach to life uh and uh playing you know major league baseball and I belonged at that point I knew I belonged you knew you did and for you and for I would say most ball players the moment that you understand that hey I belong here is the moment that you can really kind of take off and, and feel comfortable in your own skin and, and start doing the things that that you've been doing your whole life but now doing it at the highest level so that's a perfect segue back to uh you know take me back to the earlier days uh in in ohio when you're you know you're playing little league ball then you're playing high school ball and then college ball um i know you were a, a big fan of the game obviously going to get reds games when you could and that kind of thing when did you decide that baseball was going to be what you pursued like how early did you know i got a chance at this well i went to ohio university where they had a program that was widely known to be a great baseball program uh and you know in the northeast um midwest whatever you know whatever you want to call ohio <laughs> where it's located <laughs> you know it's a cold weather climate you got lucky yep. if you play 30 games, uh, you know, in a spring. Uh, nowadays, uh, you know, the number of games they play in college are crazy. And the number and the experience kids get in college now is off the charts. But back then, there were 30 games to be played. Um, and when I first started, I was a switch hitter. Uh, highly unsure of myself, very insecure. I hit left-handed, obviously right-handed. And, 
Um, yeah, I was a pretty good defensive player. And when I was right-handed, I hit a few long home runs to left field. But, you know, I was nowhere near being a professional uh, baseball prospect, nowhere near. And, uh, again, some breaks happened. Uh, the shortstop on the varsity team after my freshman year signed a professional contract and there was no one I played shortstop back and there was no one to, to fill that gap of me little old me and I, I was <laughs> not ready for it but um, I ended up being given that job and I worked my way um, into belonging and at one series uh, Bob Wren our coach back then said Mike why don't you try to hit all right-handed for a while because that was my side First at bat, hitting right-handed, home run down the left field line. You know, I surely didn't hit it to right field, but I pulled it down the left field line, and, and uh, I never hit left-handed again the rest of my life. Um, and I still got a pretty good swing left-handed, but I never – and I always wanted to hit once in the major leagues left-handed, but I never did. And um, there again, another life-changing moment, you know, if you never – if I stay as a switch hitter, I would have never become a professional prospect. And the timing, who knows, had I struck out that first at bat or something, you know, I hit a home run that first at bat. So I became a believer in right in a ditty. Um, and I slowly worked myself into being noticed by some scouts as shortstop, pretty big guy, good arm, good defense, ran, ran well, um, could hit with power, all the things they looked for back then in a, in a uh, prospect. And scouts started coming to games. I became an All-American my junior year. Uh, I noticed those guys with the books sitting up in the stands every time we played a game and uh, kind of, you know, made me feel uh, more confident when I know they were there to watch me. And um, I was ended up being drafted by the Phillies after my senior year. And so that's kind of the story of my pre-Phillies um, baseball uh, and uh, worked out drafted second by the Phillies 30th pick I think I was the first college player pick oh, how about that, that? okay in uh, 1971 so I went to Reading got to stay there another life-changing moment at Reading I hit a home run to win a <laughs> to win an exhibition game yeah right for the big club not not the Reading club right where I was where I would end up playing in my first, um, you know, my, where I'd be assigned as a minor league player by the, by the Phillies. And, uh, but played for the big club, hit a home run to win the game. And rather than sending me to Pennsylvania, you know, wherever Spartanburg or uh, I forget the other name of the team, uh, the other high A team, uh, I got to start right in Reading. So that saved me a year. Yeah. So timing is everything, Mark. No doubt about it. You got to have your timing as a ball player and timing is everything in life as well. So the answer to the trivia question, Mike Schmidt's first home run as a Philly probably isn't what everyone thinks that didn't happen in 72. It happened in 71 because you were wearing the Phillies uniform at the time. That's, uh, That's right. I might have to hold that one in my back pocket and win some money on that one. Let, let's right. jump ahead. Let's jump ahead. So obviously throughout the 70s, the, the team, uh, the Phillies come together and are a juggernaut in the NL East and the National League. But for whatever reason, in, you know, 77 and 78, uh, things don't come all the way together. There's just something missing. As, as you think back, and I'm sure you've talked about this many times, when you think back, um, what do you think was missing from that club that, you know, 
didn't allow you guys because talent wise as good as anybody in the league. Um, you know, I, I can only, um, think about myself in terms of what I didn't have that I had, you know, when we ended up, um, uh, getting into the playoffs, you know, getting through the first, uh, when we did got beat by the Dodgers twice and we got beat by the Reds in 76. What didn't we have? Well, we, uh, obviously the first two times it was, it was, uh, experience confidence and the big red you know the big red machine in 76 and then the pretty good dodger team yeah 77 and, and 78 and then it was the pirates in 79 that prevented us from getting into the postseason so the the, the swagger in the postseason um just the confidence that we um you know can beat anybody at any time uh um Maybe the clutch hitting off of the bench that we ended up having in 1980. And I know that for sure because I had a personal relationship with Del Unser, um, who got a couple of big hits when I, I did. didn't when I didn't come through. Um, <laughs> you know, so uh, you know, it's hard to put it's hard to really uh put into words exactly what was missing. Now, if you take me to 19, if I take you to 1980 and say what was missing, I say, well, we had a guy named Pete Rose <laughs> yeah. on a, in 1980 who was part of the team that beat us in 76. And just just having him around sort of let the air out of the balloon. Um, but we all kind of, you know, just could feed off of Pete. Um, he finally said it in a World Series after after we got through Houston and, and Montreal is hey you guys just relax this is this is the most fun time you'll ever have just hang around me I'll, I'll you know I'll show you guys how to get through this World Series but that was that really happened in Houston and Montreal and having a guy like Pete you wouldn't believe that in baseball one guy could make such a difference you know in back. Oh, you know, you, you get a Kareem Jabbar in the middle and he, you know, he can take you to the, to the promised land in football. I guess maybe you could have a great, great quarterback who could do that. Um, but in a team sport like baseball, you always wonder, well, how can one guy make such a difference? And Pete was, I don't know. He was probably never given that kind of respect that we know that he should get in baseball because the guys that play the game understand there's one guy in the history of baseball that could change a three-game series or a post or five-game postseason series and it's Pete Rose he's always you know like you say he's always got a nose for the ball yeah you know um you always you never want to bet against Pete Rose uh in a big game um so just just the uh having him rub off when everybody else made a difference that's again really hard to explain so that's what we didn't have in the first three postseason uh, ventures was yeah. Pete so um e even if he didn't win the world series mvp or the nl mvp i think which manny trio may have won that year in 1980 he was truly the mvp i'd give him my mvp trophy back anytime yeah, it's so interesting when you look back and you and you listen to some of the interviews that were happening, you know, during that season, then afterwards about not only on the field, obviously dynamic player but later in his career at that point, but dynamic player still on the field. 
but what he was able to do inside that clubhouse uh, with with you guys and and kind of take the maybe to take the heat off of some of you and and bring it on to him and allow the focus to be on him so that the rest of you guys could just go out and relax and play baseball. Uh, I think he, he yeah, I don't know, uh, he seemed to embrace that kind of role. Clubhouses back then were a bit different than they are now. Um, you know, one reason maybe now is social media, of course, and there's a lot of headphones and cell phones and guys kind of into their own thing, watching TV or whatever. Back then there was a lot of uh, good natured jabbing and yelling across the clubhouse and, uh, you know, guys getting on each other. And, uh, um, and there wasn't, I think we were all guys that needed someone that we totally respected to tell us how good we are you know, how good we, we should be, you know, I mean, I, Pete Rose must, when Pete Rose said I was the best player he ever played with coming from the team that had a whole bunch of best players on it and Foster and Morgan and Griffey and going right down the line. And he came there, whether he really meant it or not, when he told the world that Mike Schmidt was the best player he's ever seen or ever played with, you have any idea what that did for me? <laughs> yeah, I, walked, I can imagine. I walked, I walked around in my uniform going, you know, I'm the best player there is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that's how I felt. Yeah. And I didn't get that um, that kind of a comment from any of my teammates prior to Pete arriving. We all had this kind of insecurity. It's the best mm-hmm. way I can. We're all great young players, but we were all kind of insecure in our own skin. And he so he totally changed that. He totally changed that. I mean, you know what Larry Bow and Greg Lozinski and uh, and all of and those guys uh, having Pete next to him, they totally changed our team dynamic. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing. And you know, coming into the '80 season, a lot of folks thought maybe the the window had closed on the Phillies that you guys were were uh, past your prime if, right. if you know even as young you had so many good young players but but you weren't favored to win the division at that point in fact i think you were picked to come in third or fourth go ahead say that again mike well if the phone rang i thought oh, I, I didn't I didn't, even, I didn't even hear it. It's all right. Um, but, uh, you know, so then you come into the season, you start playing good baseball, then you go into a swoon, you start to maybe uh, fall out of the race. And then I think there was a couple of pretty public uh, moments where Dallas maybe overturned a table in the clubhouse. And I know Paul Owens came down at one point and, and challenged you guys. And the month of September, uh, it would seem like a whole different ball club. And that's when it all kind of came together and, and you thought, all right, this team is going to do it. Yes, uh, the overturning tables and, um, you know, emptying the spread on the floor and uh, the general manager coming down and screaming and uh, throwing a lot of F words around at us and, you know, telling us, uh, you know, that we better get our our butts, uh, you know, in order or whatever. But, you know, those things happen all the time. Now, Today, I'm not sure the expletives are thrown around like they used to be in the old days, but uh, that's all part of a, a team going through a season. Well, for seven months, uh, there's always a few of those kind of meetings, you know, following a five-game losing streak or somebody not hustling to first or um, somebody being late for something. Uh, um, 
not preparing for a game as hard as we should. Those are all basic subjects of these meetings uh, that, that happen. Um, and most of the time, it's basically guys not hitting, pitchers not making their pitches. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, but down the stretch, we had to do some spectacular things to get in that postseason. And I can hear where you're coming from. I mean, three postseason failures in a row. Yeah. If the fourth one happened, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, but, but again, I go back, Pete wasn't going to let it happen. <laughs> and we had to beat Chicago four in a row at home. I remember that because the first of those of that series, my grandmother had died, and I had to fly to Dayton, um, go to the uh, the funeral, and fly back to Philly in time to get in my uniform for the game. And I, of course, I wasn't playing in that game. I did pinch hit in that game, and I think Gary Maddox ended up getting a really big hit in that game. I, I didn't get the hit when they put me uh, in, but uh, we beat the Cubs four in a row. And uh, I think not to, I can't remember, this is one of those, this really tests my brain exactly how those four games went down, but we did beat the Cubs four in a row. Then we had to go to Montreal and win two out of three. Yep. Which was a tough assignment because if they beat us two out of three at home, they were, you know, they were going to go um, to the NLCS. And there was only two. There was an NLCS and a World Series back then. There was a now. There's a whole bunch of you know right. uh, levels you have to get through. And I do remember um, a lot of guys having a good series up in Montreal. A lot of guys having to be, you know to win those games. We had to have a lot of guys have good series. And I had a good series uh, at a time when the Phillies most needed needed it. And uh, there again, another stepping stone in, in my career um, didn't have those that kind of a series in those previous uh, NLCS opportunities and, right. but I did have one in Montreal Certainly and did. Uh, home runs to win uh, win games important games important home runs we won the first two in Montreal which uh, locked us up for the NLCS and other guys, you know, uh, Bake and Bull and Booney and Boa, everybody, Pete. Uh, it seemed like guys were getting on base. Uh, pitchers were doing their job. Uh, Tug was closing games out. So we uh, we made it. We made it into the postseason. And, of course, this time we went into the postseason with Pete and the Houston Astros. So the greatest of all time, that series. Yeah. yeah. One of the great postseasons of all time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to ask you to relive all those moments, but just the overall uh, tension and then relief at, at the end when you finally do, you come back in that series and, and win the final two games uh, of the series, final three games of the series, two games of the series to, to clinch and you're headed to the World Series and you've, you've gotten over that, that, uh, that stone that was in your way for the last couple of years. Do you remember? That feeling is, is that you're able to bring that right back? Well, that was uh, the first, uh, I want to say, another um, career 
timing thing, and I owe it to Del, Del Luncer because I, I struck out with the tying or winning or whatever. It was a big run on third base, and they took out Nolan Ryan. Yes. They removed Nolan Ryan and didn't let him pitch to me. They brought a guy in called uh, Ken Forsh. Who struck me out with the tying run or winning? You know, I think it was tying run on third base in uh, in the last game of that series. You know, but imagine we were down three runs to Nolan Ryan with what six outs to go or something like this. The odds weren't good of us winning it in Houston in the Astrodome, like sixty thousand people. You needed earplugs; it was so bad. Before I got to the bat rack to throw my bat at something, <laughs> Del Unser had a double. Yeah. And uh, tied the game up and uh, solely just uh, got the monkey off of my back. And that was one of the biggest hits I ever got. Del Unser. <laughs> got <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Thank you, Del. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, and, and, you know, to, to your point, in Montreal, the big hits, you know, baseball is one of those sports. You need guys coming up uh, at big moments and making, yeah. and making things happen. And those kind of things didn't happen yeah. in the, you know, the first in the first three postseasons. And yeah. Dell, I was not the only one, but I mean, we had other pinch hitters get big hits, and I think uh, I can remember Keith Moreland getting him a really big hit. Um, who was it? Greg Gross led off the, an inning with a perfect bunt off of Nolan Ryan and. You know, you just on and on and on. I can't remember them all, but there were all kind of little moments that, uh, you know, that we pulled off as a team with guys coming off the bench and we just wouldn't die. They called us the team that wouldn't die. And then, of course, you know, there's no way the Royals could have beat us in the, in the World Series. Yeah, you know, it, you get to, to Kansas City, you get to to the World Series, and it just felt like, you know, you'd already won it. It was just a matter of time at that point put the Kansas city aside and, and bring that championship home a uh, side note. I would love to ask Nolan Ryan about the bunt that Greg gross laid down because I'm sure Nolan, I, I, I know that Nolan didn't like guys bunting against them to begin with. And uh, in a moment like that for gross to lay down that perfect bunt, I'm sure that uh, is something that Nolan still sees in his sleep. <laughs> yeah. You know, we to put an inning together against, uh, you know, against Nolan Ryan with a couple of outs remaining, for the Astros to go to the World Series was amazing. It was yeah. amazing. And, uh, you know, I was one of the black marks in the middle of that inning, and Dale Luncher came up and erased it all. And uh, you just have to have uh, players do those kind of things to be a championship team. Yeah, and you guys certainly did it. All right, before I let you go, I just want a couple quickies. Uh, we mentioned Nolan Ryan. I mean, you faced some, obviously, a dozen Hall of Fame pitchers in your career. Who was the toughest guy, you think, for you? Uh, not necessarily for anybody else, for, but for you, when he was out on the on the mound, that you were like, <laughs> it might be a long day for me. Well, we, we, we don't have to go any further than Nolan. Okay. Um, uh, Nolan's um, repertoire of pitches consisted of two. A nose-to-toes curveball and a fastball that he grunted on. And that's how he knew the fastball was coming. He grunted. Okay. Grunt. <laughs> Doesn't mean you could still hit, you could hit it, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, fortunately, J.R. Richard, one of his teammates there, um, uh, I didn't have to face very much because he, he had a, you know, a shortened career uh, health-wise. And, but Nolan um, 
you know, you looked ahead a couple of games when the Astros came to town or you went to Houston and you hoped that you got to miss him and, you know, face Negro or Nepper or, you know, the, the, the other guys in their rotation. And, but no, Nolan uh, gave you some sleepless nights. Uh, he, he was a tough pitcher. He was, uh, he had a mean streak. Um, he, uh, I had some Nolan Ryan stories that, you know, that I, uh, I could, I could make a speech at a cocktail party and, and, and get people, uh, belly laughing about some of the moments I had facing Nolan Ryan. And I have, no, I have Nolan Ryan. I think, uh, game winning home runs or home runs about five of them. Off five, of I think. Yep. yep. Yeah. And I'm sure. He remembers them. I'm sure he does. But I also uh, have a pretty low as most right-handers do uh, low career average, uh, against Nolan Ryan. So um, I looked up your numbers against Nolan. They're, they're not. They're not as bad as you think. I mean, yeah, average-wise, maybe a little bit low, but you certainly had your moments against them. I got a few knocks off them. I broke up a no-hitter with two outs in the, in the ninth inning one time. Yeah. And you would not believe this, but it was off of a curveball. <laughs> I hit it. I don't know how the heck I did it, but I hit a Nolan Ryan curveball. So I remember one hit I got off of Nolan Ryan's curveball. And, of course, he had a no-hitter going. It was, I think, the ninth inning in Houston. That was a miracle. That was one of my career miracles. <laughs> that happening are, are golly. Yeah. And that happening are crazy. But um, yeah, he, he's a, you know, he was the toughest guy. A lot most right-handed hitters would say uh, if during his, their careers, if they faced Nolan Ryan, I would say Nolan Ryan. He's the toughest battle you had as a right-handed hitter. All right. Well, maybe one of these days, uh, somewhere down the road, we'll get you to come back and tell the Nolan Ryan uh, stories as well. But I, I, I just want to finish with this because you've talked uh, at length after your career is over that at times the game was fun for you. And at times the game was not as fun as it should have been for you. I want I want to know when was the game the most fun for you? What 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 do you when you look back and think about it? Is it the is it the eighty season? Is it that simple that it was the season that it all came together for you guys? Or um, when did when did it all kind of feel just right for you? I don't know if it ever did. <laughs> that may be a strange, strange answer. Sure, the game was fun when you're two for two and you're beating the other team pretty good, and you're coming up for your third and fourth at bats, and there's no pressure, and uh, you know you get another hit and. The game was a lot of fun when I had the four home run game, yep. there right? you, go. you know, so, but I don't want to be the kind of guy that uh, says, hey, you know, I, the game was work for me all the time. I mean, it was always work. It was always head down, you know, uh, uh, blinders on, uh, you know, every, every moment of the game is my, it's my job and it's, I got to grind all the time. And, uh and it was kind of that way because I, I looked around at the players around me, uh, teammates, and I saw them having more fun, you know, them enjoying themselves uh, on the field. And, and you brought up Tug McGraw, and I think yeah. he, he, he seemed like the kind of player that always had fun when he was out there. And I don't think I, I was the opposite of Tug McGraw. I mean, I, I didn't uh, – I didn't look in the stands much, you know, I didn't, uh, uh, I, I didn't laugh a lot on the field. And those were all, you know, kind of things, if I had it to do all over again, 
I would have figured out a way to enjoy my time as a major league player a lot more. You know, I enjoy my post career time mm-hmm. a lot more. Right. And I, you know, I think that I may not have reached um, the levels of a career that I had reached, that I did reach, if I would have just gone about it as a time to enjoy, you know, a career that I should enjoy more. I was being paid to play major league baseball. I should have had a smile on my face more often, right? Um, But I, I was more of a grinder does that make sense yeah you would never know that by watching me you know you you would when you watched me you would have figured ah this is easy for him and you know i used to be called cool and you know you know all those kind of things but i wasn't in internally i was uh i was grinding all the time you know from noon every day till noon you know till midnight every night during a baseball season I was grinding, you know, I was mentally thinking about what was going to happen, the pitcher that night and, you know, mechanically what I needed to do as a hitter. So I don't know. That's a long answer to your question. I wish I would have had more fun. I really do. Well, you know, I can say this. Uh, I was a young, younger kid watching the Phils back then uh, when you were playing, but, uh, and I know you know this at this point, even though maybe at the time you weren't enjoying it, the enjoyment that you brought to tens of thousands of, of Phillies fans uh, all over the world, really, uh, you know, people will never forget it. And that's why, uh, you know, this opportunity to chat with you about it is, is so exciting for us because of what you were able to accomplish on the field. And, uh, and we really appreciate it, Mike. Murph, that's nice of you to say anytime, anytime. And uh, I, I wish you the best of luck with this, with this new venture. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Mike, the best uh, third baseman ever to play Major League Baseball, joining us here on Glove Stories with Murph. Mike, we'll talk to you soon, and uh, we'll see you back up here in Philadelphia when the season gets started. I know, I know. I'm looking forward to it. All Bye, right. Baby. Mike Schmidt, thank you. Glove Stories continues in just a couple minutes. Charlie Manuel will join us and uh, relive one of those great games back from the 2008 season. So stay with us here on Glove Stories with Murph. Don't forget to subscribe to Glove Stories with Murph. There's no charge and episodes will automatically download to your computer or smart device. And make sure to rate us, especially if you enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to Glove Stories with Murph. And we're going to do something fun uh, in this particular segment. And we're going to do this the entire season. Each week, we are going to relive a game from two of the seasons. Well, the, the, the best seasons in Philly's history. You remember them? Remember them? 1980, of course, and 2008. So when we relive 1980, our special guest is going to be Larry Boa. And when we relive 2008... Well, you can't do that without the guy who was sitting on the end of the bench, the manager of the 2008 Phillies, Charlie Manuel, will join us to relive those games. Charlie, great to see you. Great to see you, Greg. Uh, really, uh, I'm happy, very, uh, very happy to be with you. And, and uh, I'm looking for our shows this summer, and uh, I know they're going to be good. It's going to be a lot of fun. And what's more fun than reliving the glory days of the championship season of 2008 and what I've always marvel about is the way that you guys are able to recall that season in such detail just like the fans can but you know I want to pick that brain and I want to relive some of the best games so we're going to do that and we're going to start 
with game number three of the season. So you'll remember in 2007, obviously the team makes the postseason. You get swept out by Colorado. You come back in 2008, and there's all kinds of expectations around this team. And then right out of the gate, the Nationals come to town. Citizens Bank Park is going nuts, and you guys drop the first two games. What do you remember about that? I remember it. I remember that year that uh, Brett Myers started the first game for us, and he got knocked around some, of course, and, and we lost that first game. And then the next night, Hamels pitched to Jim, and we couldn't score for him. And it was a tough night for us. And, and then, then we had the third game where we come from behind, and we caught up and put a six spot on them. And, yep. uh, and, and, and we caught them, and uh, we end up winning the game in the 10th inning. And yeah. uh, actually, uh, once it uh, once it uh, we got down from about the fifth inning on, our pitching was really good in that game. I remember some of our relievers coming in and getting and and uh, doing a real good job. Yeah, and but, I'm gonna I was gonna ask you about that, but let me ask you about Jamie first because you know here you are 0 and 2 to start the season, and I, you know in Philadelphia it's 162 games, but you start the season 0 and 3, and people are gonna start to say what's going on with this team, so. <laughs> You send Jamie Moyer out there, and in the first inning, as you mentioned, five quick runs. You hit after hit after hit, and the Nats bat around in the first inning. Right. Tom, uh, when I said uh, Jamie Moyer was a unique and a very different kind of pitcher, I seen him pitch all through his, in, in the minor leagues. I seen him in the major leagues. Matter of fact, he got sent out of the big leagues twice, and I, mm -hmm. and I made the statement that uh, he might have a hard time getting back. Not only did he get back, but he took time out to get a hundred million dollars in between that. <laughs> but no, uh, when he give up five runs, usually in the first inning for Jamie, every now and then, if you, if you notice early in the game, if you go back at his patterns, uh, he'd give up a couple runs or three runs or something. Five's usually quite a bit for him. But uh, there again, if you stop and think how we played and and uh, how I trusted our team and 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 the, and the players that we had. To me, five runs was not, you know, like, I mean, that's, don't get me wrong, five runs is five runs, but at the same time, you know, we were still in that game of five runs. I always looked at it as we were, we were in the game from five to eight runs, really. And yeah. uh, and I left him in there and pro probably uh, maybe uh, four innings might have been a long, long, uh, maybe I probably should have hit, hit for him. I probably could have. You know, like with, with no problem, but at the same time, too, it was early in the season. Probably I wanted to make sure that he, he got some pitches in, you know, like for his next outing. Sure. And he get, ended up giving up another run, and give, given the run that we got back. And, and uh, so, you know, like in, when I took him out, he'd give up six runs. And yeah. after that, you know, you know, yeah. we, so we, you mentioned. Chris Coast, yeah, Chris Coast hits a home run, gets you, you get you one run closer, but then Moyer gives it right back in the next inning. So that was it. You pull him, uh, and in comes Chad Durbin. And as you mentioned, at that point, the pitching seemed to settle down a little bit. In fact, uh, the relievers only gave up one more run uh, from that point on, and that was a big part of the game. You're getting, getting good innings That's from huge. the relievers. Actually, actually, when you're behind early in the game and things like that, you know, when you go to your bullpen, I, uh, it's one of the things that I used to think about too. And there, therefore, would take us back to the five runs that they scored early. 
you know, like usually we try to keep the game, you know, like in striking uh, distance because, you know, like with our offense and the way we play, you know, like we can catch it. So it's very important for those guys that's coming out of the bullpen, our long guys or our middle inning guys or whatever, you know, like they gave us a, 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 a actually they gave us a tremendous game here and it, uh, it actually gave us a chance to win the game. Yeah. So you're down six, one, and then the sixth inning comes around bottom of the sixth and you guys are coming to bat top of the order. And just like that, as you mentioned, and it would become a theme in 2008, the offense turns on and hit after hit after hitting it eight hits and a hit by pitch in that inning. And you put six runs up on the board and it was all your big guys too. single, 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 right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you like people used to look at us as, a power hitting team. Uh, oh, Charlie loves home runs, which I do probably more than anybody in the world. But <laughs> at the same time, too, I, I also like the way the game is played. And I like uh, we had a lot of speed and we had a lot of uh, guys that can handle a bat and hit. And you like and actually, Tom, if you look kind of look at it, we had regular players on the field Every, yeah. not, day in, day out, uh, out. You know, like most of the time we had regular players on the field, if we gave somebody a break or something, we only had one or two players that was out of our lineup at, at, at those times. But but we had very consistent uh, offense, and uh, that, that right there allowed sometimes allows us to keep the pitchers in the game. Yeah, you know, yeah, and and you know, and as you pointed out, and we saw this, and you know, we know how it ended, so you can look back and and think about it. But but you're right, this this offense always seemed to be in striking distance if the number was five or, or even six, this team right. felt like, you know what, we can get back there. And and that was part of the swagger of the 08 team. Was it not? Without a doubt. You know, we had a, a, we, we put forth a lot of effort. We came to the ballpark every day focused on trying to win. Also Tom, you know, like people will look sometime the game is kind of being played. You played, you hear my pitching coach say, well, we've got to keep some pitching for tomorrow. If I can go back and tell you now, actually, uh, I wanted to win that. If we were close to winning that game or or in that game that night, I wanted to win that game. I, you know, I got me personally. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I will attack tomorrow. You know, like when we get there. But at the same time, when you like winning that game, I, I look at numbers as we go through the through the season. You know, like about our win and loss record and things like that. And I, I've always looked at it as 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 being a two game swing around. You know, like if you win. You know, like, yeah, you won one game. If you lose, then, you know, like you lost one. But at the same time, uh, if you win and you look up at the end of the year, uh, it's kind of like a record. I did notice that a record was 15 and 13 at the end of the month. And one of the biggest things about that is two overtime will get you uh, 12, 12 wins, two over each month. It'll get you 12 wins during the season. And that means, guess what? It gives you 92, 93 wins. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like and so, therefore, you know, like I always kind of looked at those uh, uh, the numbers I looked at it. You know, like where we was at and everything. You know, like uh, during a season, if you can compete and stay close, you will never give up. You know, like I think. You know, like un- uh, actually, unless you get like twenty some games out with you know, like with forty two to play or something or whatever. Right. Right. All right. Well, let's jump back in because Ryan Matson gives up another run and now the game is tied at seven. So we go to extra innings in this one. And in the bottom of the 10th, Jimmy starts off the inning with a base hit. And then you have Shane Victorino sacrifice him over to second. And then 
all of a sudden, Jesus Colon for the Nationals cannot throw a strike. He ends up walking, well, intentionally walks uh, Chase Utley, and then he walks Ryan Howard, and then Jason Worth steps to the plate, and once again, he can't find the plate. Right, exactly. I mean, you, you know, like he, uh, all of a sudden, he just, uh, you know, like he he just couldn't get the ball over the plate, and, uh, and you know, like we stayed with him. Uh, we caught up with him early when they went ahead of us, and the game actually turned out to be a heck of a game. And, and uh, at the end, you know, like we did get a uh, chance and, and actually we took advantage of that break and, and uh, won the game. The bunt was important for us. You know, like people don't yeah. anymore. The bunt's kind of out of baseball. But but <laughs> but to me, the bunt it puts a runner in scoring position and, and we got all this consistent hitting behind it. So, yeah. you know, like uh, we'll give an out for a run, you know, like any day of the week. Yeah. And, and you knew you had a guy in Shane Victorino that can get the butt down more often than not. And that, that may be what's missing right. in, in today's game is that, that you know, those kinds of players right. aren't around as much because they don't practice it. But Shane, you knew Shane could get it right. down. You ask him to do it, and he gets the job done. And you talked right. about managing this game to win this game. It's game three of the right. season. But you use 21 players and right. seven pitchers. That's managing <laughs> to win a game, is it not? <laughs> That's okay. Oh, they said we won that game, and also we uh, that right there put us in a chance to win uh, the next day too, because That's you know, right. like uh, it changed it. Hey, we finally got a win after three games, and you know, like uh, and and we just hung in there, and you know, like and things started happening for us, and and it uh, early early in the season, you got to really be careful because those game counts too. You know, like, and you see people say, well, wait till we get to September and they'll start telling you about resting players and things like that. And I used to really kind of uh, not like that in some yeah. respect because uh, I always figured resting the player, unless he was hurt or something, that's between him and I, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you, and, uh, and, and if he gets tired and everything like that's up to me and my coaches to see it. And, you know, like, and, uh, you know, call him in and communicate with him and maybe give him, give him a blow. But at the same time too, we wanted that to have, you know, like a starting lineup and, uh, and, and, and actually we always wanted to have our, uh, our bullpen organized and everything to, to me, that's, that was one of the biggest things about the world series, but at the same time too, our during the whole, during the whole stay that we got, got in the, the big streak of, five consecutive uh, um, titles, you know, mm -hmm. like that came into play, I think organizing our bullpen because when, when, when we did not, when we had trouble in our bullpen with it being organized, it seemed like our team got in trouble. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think that's uh, true for most teams. And you could say that even in today's game, if you don't have that bullpen figured out, it, it doesn't always go as well. Well, Charlie, uh, you got the win that day in April. You, you went to one and two and he thought, okay, all right, things are going to go. Who knew how it was going to end at the right. end of 08, but uh, we're going to take you right. through the rest of the season a little by little as we go on here with uh, okay. glove stories with Murph. But Charlie, great to right. see you. The next yeah. time, uh, I think we're sliding into May, and we're going to talk about a game in May next time we have you on the program. But uh, always good to talk to you, and uh, we'll see you soon on Glove Stories with Murph. When coming up, we've got Matt Breen from the Philadelphia Inquirer, so don't go anywhere. You can view Glove Stories with Murph on YouTube. When you find us, make sure to subscribe so that you'll know when new episodes are released. 
release episodes weekly throughout the 2021 Major League Baseball season. And welcome back to Glove Stories with Murph. Thanks to Charlie Manuel reliving game three of that 2008 season. And now we jump ahead. We jump ahead to today, the present, because we want to touch base each week with this 2021 baseball team. So we're going to welcome in today, Matt Breen from the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Philadelphia Phillies beat writer for the Inquirer. Matt, thanks for being with us. And uh, you are around these guys and you are uh, on the beat for the Philadelphia Phillies. So I wanted to pick your brain about where you think this team is right now as they break camp and get ready for opening day. And, and, you know, some of the decisions that they made because there weren't a whole lot of roster spots available, but the ones, the, the, the jobs that people were fighting for really came down to the end. We'll start in center field. Scott Kingery gets word that he's headed down uh, to the alternate site. Were you surprised by that? You're surprised by how that all played out? I, I certainly would have been surprised a month ago, like when spring training started. I don't think anybody had Scott Kingery pegged for the alternate site, but it just that's the kind of camp he had. He led the team in strikeouts, never seemed comfortable to play, working on a new swing that just kind of seems lost. And maybe this is best, not only best for the Phillies, but it best for Scott Kingery, who is under contract for three three more seasons, could play an important role here. So if that the cost of that important role is to have him go to Allentown for a month, two months, X amount of weeks to get right, it's worth it. It's the right thing to do because he wasn't ready to play in the majors right now. He needs time with no pressure, go to Allentown, work on this swing, get back to where you were. Like you, you knew who he yeah. was three years ago. Like this guy was a can't miss prospect that has kind of struggled for a multitude of reasons. And I think it's, this is the best thing they can do to get him right. Yeah, it, it was surprising the result of, of camp. But yeah, the decision kind of was made for them when, when Scott struggled the way he did. But also, you know, Odubel Herrera, who it started off hot and then kind of cooled in the middle and then got pretty good at the very end of camp. But uh, we get word earlier this week, also not going to be on the active roster. So that means that uh, Hazley and Quinn are moving forward with the team. Again, any surprises there for you? Yeah, so Odubel, the most important thing is that just for baseball reasons, he's not on the 40-man roster. So you have to get him on the roster, and to get him on the roster, you need to lose somebody from the roster. And he really needed to force their hand to say that he's enough of a difference from Adam Hazley or Roman Quinn that you're going to trim somebody off the 40-man roster when you're already trimming to get on Brandon Kinsler and Matt Joyce. So. He, he didn't do that. He didn't run away with this job. None of these guys did. So I, there's no reason to make the move right now to get him on the roster when you can give Hazley a shot, Quinn a shot. And heck, like Mickey Moniak's on the 40-man roster. He could be ahead of Herrera. Scott Kingery's on the 40-man roster. If he gets has a good month now in town, he could move ahead on the depth chart of Herrera. So he just didn't – he didn't win the job. He didn't force the Phillies' hand and, and – and now he's in Allentown, and it's, but it's a nice piece. If you need somebody, if Hazley and Quinn, you know, struggle, Odubel Rare is waiting. So yep. you just did not have to make that move this week before opening day. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense in, in that regard. All right, one move that really did surprise me, even at the end of camp, was uh, Jojo Romero going down. Not only because I thought he pitched pretty well during spring, but also another left-handed left-hander in that bullpen. But they decide to go with some more of the veteran arms. Uh, what are your thoughts on on how that decision all played out? 
Yeah, I was surprised by that too, just because him and Connor Brogdon from last year really emerged as like, you know, it, it, as that bullpen was such direct, but those two guys pitched really well, young, up and coming, seemed like they would play a key role this, this season. And Jojo Romero didn't pitch himself out of a role this no. spring. He had a fine spring. Like you said, he's left-handed. They, they're going to carry instead of, it seems like maybe they would have three left-handers at some point this spring. Now they're going to have one in the bullpen. And it, that kind of complicates it. You're playing, you know, a lot of teams in this NL East are, you know, have tough left-handed bats. And especially late in the game, you're going to have only one option out there. And I like Jojo Romero, but Joe Girardi points to the splits, re- reverse splits of Archie Bradley, who's actually better last season against left-handed hitters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you're going to have to, Connor Brogdon's efficient against left-handers. You're going to have to use your right-handed pitchers as really, you know, the guys you go to to get the big left-handed outs. Yeah, because the other left-hander in that bullpen, which is one of the best stories in camp in Alvarado, is a guy that you're going to want to use late in games. You're not going to want to use him situationally more than likely in the sixth or seventh inning. You're looking at him as an eighth, ninth inning kind of guy, right? He he might be the closer. I would say that before his last – two of his last three outings were pretty shaky for spring training, but he's at least going to pitch his way into that role of the eighth or ninth inning, you know, sooner rather than later. He might not be the closer on opening day, but he has the stuff. He has the best stuff in the bullpen. So, you know, if he can just harness that control a little bit, throwing 100 miles per hour casually, it's like not even a big deal. Like when he throws 100, you're like, yeah, that, I mean, that's what he throws. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, you don't drop your jaw at it anymore. And like you said, best story of spring training, he lost 50 pounds when he got traded from the Rays to the Phillies came in the camp, refocused, saying, you know, if I want to have a career, I have to look at myself here and lose this weight and focus and, and you know, use my talent that my 100-mile-per-hour sinker. And he looked awesome. It's just a yeah. matter of getting it together and where they kind of slots in. Yeah, no doubt about it. And you know what? Give me a guy like that, a guy that figured it out, that says, I better put the work in if I'm going to get the, the benefits of everything that comes with it. And he, he seems to be a guy that said a light bulb went on and, okay, yeah, here's what I've got to do. That's good stuff. All right, uh, back into the rotation. You know, we're hearing a lot uh, from from a lot of different folks. The Phils are running it back. And if you if you look at the lineup and you look at the, the, the guys that have made the team late in spring, a lot of the same names that we saw last year, offensively hey why not right they scored a lot of runs last year uh did the Phillies do enough do you think did they make enough changes that they'll they'll be better off than they were at the end of last season I I think so and and yeah it is easy to say when the two biggest acquisitions were Didi Gregorius and JT Romuso but like you said the lineup was not the problem last year the line the problem was the bullpen I think the bullpen's a lot better than it was last year it's not perfect, but it's not the 1930 bullpen. So that's a huge upgrade. That, that last season, a bullpen that just was decent gets you into the playoffs. Now they have a bullpen that's better than decent. And the rotation, I think, is deeper. You, you, you're always going to need more than five starters, but this season more than ever, going from a 60-game season to a 162, you're going to need, I don't know, eight starters, nine starters to get through this season. Plus, the who knows how the – virus is going to play out and you're going to have double right. headers or whatever it's it could be you know a messy season just like last year so you're going to need starting pitchers 
And I think they're going to they start the year with a decent, a, a solid five starters. You know, you have a one, two, and three. Put them up against anybody's one, two, three in the league. Are they the best? No, but they're up there. They're three guys that are, you know, legitimate front of the rotation starters. And Matt Moore and Chase Anderson, I think, are two key pieces here where Matt Moore went to Japan last year, pitched really well. Has it's not he's not like a nobody. He was the number one prospect in baseball a decade ago, had all the talent in the world to his bad luck, had some injuries. And now he went to Japan to write his career. Looks pretty good this spring. Chase Anderson, a guy that will he gives you that five, six inning start, which is so important this season, like what I said, because of how taxing the year is going to be, not just on starters, but on guys in the bullpen. Yeah. So you need durability. Chase Anderson gives you that. He's also looked good this spring. And the problem is going to come in with the starting rotation is injuries. Yeah. Last week yeah. you had Eflin goes down with a minor injury. Vince Velasquez, a minor injury and Spencer Howard and the Phillies didn't have a fifth starter. So that's how quick it can happen. They need to avoid that this year. They just need to stay healthy because they really only go seven, eight deep at most. And that's kind of stretching it. Yeah. No. And, and, you know, obviously you can say that about most teams, but uh, it is, you know, when it's right in front of you and it is for us with the Philadelphia Phillies, you can see how quickly it can unravel if, if things uh, start to not go your way. All right, Matt, before you let you go, uh, Opening day, the pomp and circumstance, fans in the stands, uh, even limited, but uh, it's got to feel like opening day. But then after that, for the Phillies, the month of April, man, oh, man, it doesn't it's not very easy for these guys right out of the gate. Yeah, we're going to find out pretty quick what this team is. A lot of there's a lot of talk all winter. Are they a playoff team? Are they a fourth place team? We're going to find out in the first month when they're playing a schedule that's heavy on the Braves, the Mets, Marlins, Nationals, they're playing the first two months. You know, it's really loaded with NL East teams. And you're going to find out right away at where they fit in. And I like it that way. You're not, yeah. you know, there's no fooling anybody. You're not getting to the all-star break saying, well, look at the second half of the schedule and how tough <laughs> it is. We're going to find out. Yeah. It'll be fun. I, I, I don't, I, you know, prediction-wise, I think they're a third-place team, but with a ceiling of winning the division. It's just like, show me you're the first place team before I go out and say you're the first place team, but they can, they have all the talent to do it. So it's going to be a fun season. It's definitely the best team they've had since they started this whole rebuild. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think that's a fair prediction. They've got to go out and show that they can do it over the course of 162, which they haven't been able to do over the last couple of years. But if they can do that, you're right. The postseason is in their grasp. Well, Matt Breen, we are going to certainly be following along by reading the Philadelphia Inquirer. We really appreciate you being here with us on our inaugural edition of Glove Stories with Murph. Next week, well, you're going to have to tune in to find out who our special guest is next week, but we certainly hope you will. Until then, I'm Greg Murphy. Thanks to Mike Schmidt. Thanks to Charlie Manuel. And thanks to Matt Breen. We'll see you next time. Glove Stories with Murph is a presentation of SBC Media Partners. The engineer for Glove Stories is Chad Evans. Cindy Webster is our marketing and guest relations director. And our executive producer is Roger Haddon.